Welcome to Playmakers Impact Unleashed, your all access pass to the game changers of today and the history makers of tomorrow. I'm your host, Paul Epstein, sports industry veteran, author and speaker, founder of Purpose Labs, and your guide through an inspiring journey of courage, comeback, and transformation. Let's take a no BS look beyond the trophy cabinet to unleash every guest's impact and how they've achieved both success and significance so we can apply those same purpose-driven principles in our own lives and careers. As playmakers, let's get ready to lock arms and take action so we can all level up and make a play together. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome a dear friend and frankly, one of the greatest leaders I know into the Playmakers community, Greg Kish. And Greg has a fascinating background that has taken him to open up not one, not two, but three new NFL venues charged with billions of dollars in revenue generation over the course of his sales and leadership career. Speaking of leadership, Greg and I will go deep on the topic, from leading teams to leading culture and leading ourselves so that we can show up with more consistency, care, awareness, authenticity, and vulnerability, including some practical ways to bring these qualities to life. You'll hear about some of Greg's early hard left turns with an injury-turned-opportunity to potentially unearth an eventual calling. He'll then share his philosophies on going all in on strengths versus addressing weakness. We're gonna debate old school versus new school business, even the effects of the pandemic, personal and professional. And the grand finale is around purpose. How can we apply purpose to our daily lives? And in my opinion, it's hard to find somebody that has cracked that purpose-driven code and answered that question better than Greg. He truly has figured out how to live his why every day and impact countless others along the way. I promise you, this is one of those conversations you will want to keep a notepad nearby. It's that good. Big thanks to Audible.com for being a sponsor of today's show. As playmakers, we're all about leveling up and lifelong learning. So what could be better than a free audiobook and 30-day free trial when you visit audible.playmakerspod.com? With over 200,000 titles to choose from, there is no limit to what you can explore. Perhaps... And these are just a few of my personal favorites. You want to check out The Success Principles by Jack Canfield. Consider this chicken soup for the soul of personal growth. Or maybe you dive into Grit by Angela Duckworth, where she unpacks the power of what happens when passion meets perseverance. Again, to download your free audiobook today, go to Audible. Playmakerspod.com. 
Before we welcome in Greg, a bit of his backstory. Greg Kish oversees all ticket sales and service initiatives at SoFi Stadium, home of the LA Rams and LA Chargers, and home to the upcoming Super Bowl 56. Prior to his efforts in helping bring the NFL back to LA, Greg worked with the 49ers to open up Levi Stadium, the Dallas Cowboys to open up AT&T Stadium, and this was all after beginning his decorated sports career with Mandalay Sports Entertainment. Beyond all of the trophies and accomplishments, Greg's true legacy has become to serve and be a catalyst as an industry-leading coach, leader, and purpose driver, and the number of lives he has impacted is absolutely extraordinary, and it's still climbing. Buckle up for what is about to be one of the most fascinating, inspiring, and real conversations that I've ever been a part of. It's time to welcome in Greg to the Playmakers Podcast. Greg, welcome to the show. How are we doing? Oh, doing, doing wonderful, Paul, and, and thank you. It really is, uh, is an honor and a privilege to be a part of this. Of course, of course. And it's been a number of years. We've done some fascinating work together. I like to say on and off the field, four plus years at the Niners. And, and we're going to get way into the journey, both personally and professionally. And then now, head of sales, SoFi Stadium, home of the Rams and Chargers. And I give it a caveat in the sense of it is such an amazing platform and venue and the whole world just can't wait to get in there. Well, you're one of the few that has been in there. So I'd love a backstage pass for everybody listening in when it's safe to do so. And when we all get inside a SoFi stadium, give me like the one, two, maybe three coolest things, the things that you are most excited to show off and share. And you think we will be wowed by the stadium. You know, I'll start with this, Paul. I've been very fortunate in my career, which I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about uh, throughout this hour to be a part of some of the, the best stadiums, you know, in, in the country, especially on the NFL side, working with the Cowboys opening AT&T, uh, working with the 49ers with you, obviously, and, and opening up Levi Stadium, which is an incredible venue. Uh, you know, typically when you go through the process, you see the renderings and how incredibly beautiful it can be. And you're hopeful that when you open, it matches that. I will say this, uh, every area, nook and cranny that I have seen from the rendering to the actuality continues to blow me away every time I step foot in the building for the times that I've been fortunate enough to be able to go in there. Uh, it's just absolutely incredible. So I think not just one feature, and I could talk about a couple, but overarchingly just how it stands out above and beyond anything I've ever seen in stadium before. And we you know between you and I, we've been to a lot of them. Um, it, it absolutely just blows me away and continues to every time I step in. I think the other thing that, uh, that stands out to me again, if I'm to put more of a blanket over the top of this without getting too specific is I was speaking with our general contractor, the head of our, of our joint venture that was building the stadium not too long ago, I'd say six, seven months ago. And, uh, he's probably done, I want to say 10 to 15 in his lifetime. And he's been around wow. for 50 plus years and uh, he, he looked at me and he said, you know, Greg, you are never going to see anything like this in your lifetime ever built again. Hmm. And to hear somebody who, who's been a part of some pretty iconic projects around the world, not just in the U.S., to, to say that before it even opened, before it was even complete, uh, speaks, speaks absolute volumes. And it did to me at the time. And every time I continue to go in, whether it be 
the you know amazingly opaque ETFE you know roof structure we have over the top. Yeah. It is yeah. A, it is the first indoor outdoor building built in this way. So you feel outdoors yet you're covered but you have the breeze coming in. It's almost like having your car windows down, but you know, you've got that little piece of protector on top of your uh, windshield that makes sure it blocks the UV, you know? So you don't get too warm when the sun's shining. You're not gonna get too cold because you're, you're in a great bowl and you're enclosed. So it, it actually provides for a great environment. I'd say that uh, the fact that we dug 100 feet down into the ground and built the stadium very vertically so that even people that are sitting, call it towards the top row, are actually closer to the field, even though they're slightly higher than most stadiums, they're actually physically closer to the field. Their line of sight is better. So when you're standing on the field and look up, it's incredibly intimate for 70,000 people, as intimate as 70,000 can get. So once, right. once fans are able to be a part of this and walk in, uh, I, I hope that both the Rams and Chargers fans can get really loud in there and really create an amazing home field advantage. So the environment will be great. And I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the capabilities of the technological advances that we have, specifically around the double-sided 360 video board that we have that provides any fan, any patron watching an event, not just for football, but an event, you know, the best view they possibly could have. So we could do an hour of me going on and on <laughs> about, about how incredible this place is, but, but the best part is it's not a commercial for me. I, I truly, genuinely feel yeah. that. And I, I can't wait to show it off. The best part about opening a place like this is being able to show it off to the world. Mm -hmm. And we've only been able to do that through video, through pictures, um, and, and through some different broadcast opportunities. Hopefully soon we are able to share it with the world. No, it's great because I remember specifically even being at the Niners, I always used to talk, you and I, we were deeply and intimately involved from both a sales and service team perspective. And when you think about service, and now let's expand that, guest service. So you have 70,000 guests each and every time that you open the building, uh, obviously in a normal traditional uh, sense. And I remember specifically talking to our team about we can do everything perfectly from the point that they walk inside of the gates until the time they leave the gates. And perhaps that five second encounter with a parking attendant can make or break their emotional feeling as soon as they get home. And so there's so many moving parts and without getting too in the weeds of even who worked for the team versus who's just independently coming in on a game day, that would probably be going a little too deep. So let, let's take a turn. You mentioned a bit about enjoying the losses and I'm a massive fan of learning from your losses and studying from your losses. And so if we were to take a trip down memory lane and you mentioned some of the stadiums you were a part of, from AT&T in Dallas with the Cowboys, Levi's and the Niners, now SoFi with the Rams and Chargers. So you've had quite a journey, but I didn't cover your entire resume. So let's go back to when you first broke in and let's go through your journey. But one of those points where rather than think of it as linear and one position led to another, career growth 101. Was there a hard left turn that you had to take? Was there something completely unexpected that either took you off the rails, oh, almost yeah. took you off the rails? All right, I hear, oh yeah, oh, go yeah, for yeah. it. You know, you know I mean, <laughs> yeah, you're, 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 you're teeing me up for this one because uh, you know the last thing I, I can ever be in any of these situations is surface, right? And, and certainly, um, you know, with us having our, our history at the Niners and, and our ability to work together, you know, personally and professionally on so many different things and so many different levels, 
um, this this is something that that's really impactful to me. So. Uh, yeah, I was very fortunate enough as a child. I grew up in playing baseball and had two very supportive parents. Uh, I was an only child and was fortunate enough to have two very supporting parents who really put my life above theirs throughout. Um, you know, whether it be monetarily, whether it be mentally, emotionally, physically, whatever they could do, uh, uh, they would do that. And it put me in a situation that, you know, I was able to play baseball. Uh, I was able to play, you know, travel baseball. I, you know, as, as, a, as a kid, I had the fortunate opportunity to play for Team USA when I was 16 and be in that environment. So really, I, I grew up, I was fortunate to get a scholarship in college. Um, I, I grew up in, in a really, really great position uh, and I enjoyed playing. But yeah, there was a hard, there was two hard left turns, actually. One was harder than the last, but you know, I, I really felt I was going to play, uh, at least at some capacity beyond college. Uh, you know, I was told every step along the way that was what's going to happen. I was told by coaches, mentors, scouts, um, you know, people at the professional level all across the board. Uh, you know, I ended up getting hurt. It's a long story, but basically it was injury, came back, first game back, injury. And it, 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 I tried to hide it the second time around and it just got worse and worse. And, and so it put me in a position to where I had a choice to make. Do I want to try and do the surgery, revitalize my career, go back from the bottom up, or do I want to try to try a different track? Well, my head coach at the time needed a second assistant. And he said, look, I know you're just coming out and you're you know coming out of school and you're done playing, but I really want you to be a part of this if you want to. I said, you know what, why not? Continue my education put myself in a position to be a coach. This sounds great. It's, it's a calling, right? The coaching card. Right. Thing. Being in sport, uh, uh, understanding the actual game and, and how, to, how to analyze it, like that, that's what I love. So I realized very quickly that that was not a calling of mine. I went through coaching for a year, whether it was the environment I was in, trying to you know, kind of coach some of your peers, that was difficult. Um, I, I just didn't love the path. So I, I decided, okay, what's next? Well, what do I want to do? I want to evaluate talent. I want to be in the game still. I want to focus on baseball. I want to be on the baseball operations side. 100% yeah. that's where my mind was, right? So like Billy Bean track? Yeah, yeah. And, but, you know, without the you know, Yale-Harvard degrees like the OFC and everybody <laughs> had, uh, I, was, I, was, I was just going to piece it together with my random business degree. But anyway, um, but, but I knew I didn't want to be a scout. I didn't want to go through those ranks. Um, I obviously didn't necessarily have the, the analytical mind from, from a direct numbers standpoint to be able to sincerely dive in statistically and break things down. I was more here and here, right? Mm -hmm. So I ended up getting good mentorship and, and, and an opportunity to get into minor league baseball. And I was told, hey, take this track, get in in like ticket sales just to get in because it's the most open job you can find, which it would still be the case today and moving forward, hopefully. Uh, in sports, but get in where you can get in and work your way. And then guess what? You'll figure it out. If you want to be in baseball operations, you'll find a way. And I, I sat there and I took this job, a nine hour interview, actually my first interview ever uh, that I've ever had. Didn't really know what the job I was going for was. I thought it was going to be more of like an internship type opportunity. And um, yeah, nine hours later, they said, hey, do you want to move your stuff out here and be a corporate marketing manager? And I'm, I was, what the, what the hell is that? Uh, sure, yeah, it was great. But I realized at the time they wanted to directly throw me in outside sales. I was raw, but they wanted to just get me going. Now, I started this, this you know, sales game and this understanding of the industry with a mindset of three to six months and then focus on baseball operations, try to find a way in. Right. 
I found more and more throughout, this is kind of the, the easier turn for me, right? I, I found more and more throughout that I was loving, really passionate and loving the, the sales opportunities within the environment of sport. And that it was melding together all of the life lessons I learned from playing baseball, right? And, and, and being in a situation, Paul, where you have to have an individual effort within a team environment. I mean, that's business in general today, right? Sure. Across the board, uh, understanding how to lead without being a boss, right? Leadership versus bossing. Um, how to put yourself in a position to know when you have to sacrifice or when you have to drive in a run, right? When you have to be clutch versus when you have to be supportive. There were so many things and dynamics and lessons that I learned that I saw, not only that, but taking it even to the level of the actual competition, the chess match between a pitcher and a hitter and what goes on in between every single pitch, especially up here. Sure. I saw a lot of that in the one-on-one -on -one opportunities I was having with prospective clients. I saw a lot of similarities in that. And as I started piecing this together, about four months into it, I just said, I absolutely freaking love this. And I, I want to be on this track. This is, too, this is too much fun for me. It fits every you know, a bit of my characteristic at the time and what I can grow into. And really that's what started my focus on what is my professional career now. Ah, it's lovely to hear all the details because A, there was a mental strategy of your bounce back, I'll call it. And, and I certainly want to come back there, but I'd be remiss if I didn't double click on this. You said, being a great leader without being a boss. Most of our, many of our, I should say, listeners are in a variety of levels at their career. I'll put it in two buckets. You and I, we've enjoyed both buckets. Formal leadership, meaning you have a reporting team. I like to call it a span of care. And prior to that, in the trajectory, you're in what most call an individual contributor role. And so let's put ourselves, in my opinion, and the word boss gets tossed around, but you would clearly associate that more with being a formal leader. Uh, again, we could talk till we're blue in the face about what's a leader versus a manager, but let's just put it in the boss bucket for now. Needless to say, how do you, for those listening in, if you don't have a reporting team, you are in a current individual contributor role, how can you show up as a leader? What are the attributes? What are the behaviors? What are the daily actions you can take? What perspective can you share on that? I think number one is you can't try to lead. The harder you try in, in what I've seen, the harder it is for people to actually put themselves in the natural you know, opportunities to lead. What does it mean to lead without being a formal leader in my opinion? What it means is what is your level of consistency? Okay. So what do you, what do you bring to the table every single day? What, what is your, what is your energy level? What is your, your work ethic? What is your respect level for your teammates? What is your ability to communicate and want to communicate, uh, uh in a way that can be beneficial at all times? Like how is that level of consistency coming in every day? That's a leader being consistent is leadership, right? Number one, I think number two, how much do you genuinely care about what you do in your environment? And I think being a leader to me takes out this whole work life balance stuff and just takes work and puts it under your life. It's a part of your friends. It's a part of your family. It's a part of your hobbies, a part of your interests. 
Why, why do you need to remove that so far away and make it its own bubble when it should just all be enveloped in your life? And the reason why I think that's so important, and it really is what drives, and we could talk about culture and everything, but it's what drives sure. my culture and, and our culture as, as, as a leadership group and as our team, which is if you come in and genuinely care about everything you're doing every single day and have the best interest in mind of what we're trying to accomplish, you can never make a wrong decision. Can you make a mistake? Sure. But if right. you make a mistake with the right intent, your opportunities of being a leader increase and the way you show yourself as a leader increase. If you make wrong decisions, that's just making a bad decision with bad intent or making a mistake with bad intent, which again, those are the types of things that, that very easily separate themselves throughout the course of time if you're in an individual yeah. contributor role. I think, I think the last thing, and this, this is the biggest piece for me because leadership comes in so many forms and fashions that show through different personality traits. I think don't try to be someone you're not. Take what you have, take your individual strengths. Every single person, whether you know, you're talking about it professionally or personally, has a certain level of individual strength within them that rises and is above and better than anything else. And it's, it's all different for each person. But sure. what I think most people do in, in these environments is they focus so hard on their weaknesses and, and, and what, you know, what they need to work on to get better. I think that's great and I think it's necessary. However, I think focusing on putting your strengths at the top of your game every single day puts you in a position to be at your best every single day as opposed to struggling at this mediocre line because all you're doing is trying to focus on making everything that you're not good at better. And I think that's a key mistake when people try to lead is they're focused on, okay, I gotta, I gotta figure out how to do this better. I'm not good at this, I'm not good at this. Well, no, focus on your inherent strengths. Bring those to the top of, of everything you do every day, whether it be personally or professionally, it goes both ways, right? And put those at the top and if you do, then you allow yourself to be comfortable enough to, to shine in those moments. And then also know that everybody else has their own individual strengths that you can help with and be a part of and, and, and nurture and grow and work with. To me, that's, that's leadership at an individual contributor level. Yeah, 100%. And, and if I could wrap that up, and I actually heard you in a presentation years and years ago talk about, and this is beautiful because it's consistent with what you just shared with us now, years later, you were talking about the keys to leadership and my anchor takeaway that you spoke about was authenticity. That's what you just described. You can't fake authenticity. Either you are or you're not. There's no gray area. It's black, it's white. Are you being authentic? Are you being true to your core? You also brought up an interesting point and, and let's challenge perhaps what a world accepted notion is and maybe you and I have a different thought. So let's play with this for a little bit. So in your case, proud father, and so we think of a different family dynamic, but let's say this, let's say whether you're a parent or not, this should resonate. You get the report card for your kid and it has four grades on it, an A, an A minus, a B, and a D. If we were asking the typical person out there in society, what would your immediate reaction be? What do you think they'd well, say? Well, they, they go right to the D and why'd you get a D and what, what's the issue? 100%, right, yeah, right, right, fix right. the D, fix the fix D, the D. Yep. Versus, versus what if you double down on the A and try to be the best A plus in the world at whatever subject matter that was, that's your gift, that's your strength, 
That's your talent. That is you flexing your passions to become the best at something versus trying to become average in a weakness. So thoughts? hundred percent. And I think it resonates very, very deeply with me. And, and look, I don't want to brag. My daughter has yet to get an A minus yet in, and she, and she just, in, she's in fifth grade and has yet to get anything under an A. Uh, so I, I, you know, I'm not going to brag or anything. Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> no, but it, but it plays into the understanding of self-awareness, right? And, and yes, authenticity is a big piece to that, Paul, because you can't be self-aware without being uh, having a level of authenticity with everything you do every day. But here's the awareness factor, right? Understanding where you're, you're A, A plus, all of that shines, putting the 80% focus on that. Take the 20% and learn how to manage the D to a C because that can be helpful and adequate, but, sure. but, but having the awareness to know what you don't know and having almost the level of vulnerability to say, hey, I don't know this as well, or I'm just not good at this and I don't know why I can't grasp it. Can I get help, right? And that, that people, think, people think that being vulnerable puts a level of discredit to who you are. Uh, I, I completely think the opposite. I think if you were, if someone comes to me with, with a vulnerable mindset and is like, hey, I just, I'm telling you, here's my cards. Here's what I'm not great at. I know I'm never going to be an A at this, but I need a little help getting it to a C just to manage it and make sure it's, it's not going to get, get me in a position where that D pulls me down even further. So my A's now become B's, right? So mm -hmm. it's about managing those, the, those understandings, those weaknesses, if you want to call them that. Um, and just managing what you're not good at and then being aware to know what those are. So you look out for it. Sure. So blending a couple things we've just talked about, we built up the concept of leadership and now we talk about vulnerability, the world, the way I see it. And I say this as a leadership coach, trainer, consultant, I immerse myself in studying leadership as much real world in the trenches experience as I have. I know that I will learn the rest of my life. I will never stop growing in the subject matter of leadership. That's how I feel about it. And so I say this from a place of curiosity to get your thoughts. When I bring up vulnerability in front of a leader, they cringe. The majority cringe. They view it as weakness. That is their view. So what is your perspective on that in the sense of we, if you're being authentic, you gotta be vulnerable. What does your team expect of you? So how do you show up as vulnerable in a leadership role? Does that mean weakness or do we push back on that common notion and say, we actually feel the opposite? So what's your perspective on that? I think this plays into a lot of, and I hate putting it in this bucket, but I think it'll resonate a little bit with some of the folks that are, that are listening and, and I'm sure with you as well. I don't want to call it old school, new school, new school mentality. Um, I don't even want to get into the whole word of millennial because I, to all that, me, to me, all that is bullshit and I, and I just don't buy into it. However, yeah. however, I think vulnerability was an old school thought of weakness. I think moving forward, vulnerability builds credibility because it leads from authenticity. <clears throat> it leads to, it's from self-awareness. It's from being genuine. It's from actually caring. If you're vulnerable, you care. There's, there's a reason why you're in that position, right? Because you actually care to make sure it's right or make sure whatever it is, is, is at its best. So you're going to not know things. You're going to ask questions. There's not one human being in this entire world that knows everything. I mean, you're pretty damn smart, Paul, but you don't know everything, right? And, and, Far from it. And, and no one does. And so 
if there's an expectation that somebody that's in a leadership position should know everything, that's already a false expectation, and you're already in trouble if you're in that if you're in that position as a leader. Number one, number two, the more vulnerable you are, I think, with people that are you know again, I hate using even the word underneath because that's I don't even believe in in this org chart type mm-hmm. type stuff. You know, everyone works together to achieve the right goal and the right purpose and the right understanding. So, if you're vulnerable with that, it gains not only credibility, vulnerability gains trust, mm. and and to me. Trust is such a thing that is easily, it's easy to start, even easier to break. And I think, and that's for a lot of people, that's not everybody, but it just what I've seen, in, especially in the sports environment and in our industry, sure. um, you're, you're provided a, a pretty easy start to have the open trust and understanding, but just like that, it can be broken. And yeah. one, of the, one of the easiest ways to break it, <clears throat> pardon me, one of the easiest ways to break it is to discredit yourself by thinking you know everything and putting yourself in a position to act act as if a little too much, right? And, and put yourself in a position to be disingenuous with how you approach a situation. That to me, it, it just discredits you and it allows people to further lose trust in you very quickly. And I just, I, I disagree with the notion that that means weakness in any way, shape or form. I think it's the exact opposite. I think being, not being vulnerable is a sign of weakness. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I know you said you don't necessarily like the label of old school, new school, but any other aspects of, let's put it in the old school bucket. Let's just play with this for a bit. Are there any other old school business philosophies or leadership philosophies that you think are outdated that you intentionally try to create a different culture, a new school culture, just to use that term? Is there anything else that you would push back on? Because I fundamentally agree with everything you've shared in the past few minutes. And I know our audience is benefiting tremendously. Yeah, I think uh, a couple things. I think um, the notion that everybody has the, um, call it the same level of, of work ethic and or output. Uh, I think old school mentality, especially in our industry was, hey, you have to work this many hours, make this many calls to create these, these results. Um, I think now with advancements, obviously in technology, but advancements in the way that we've learned to do things as an individual and that, that people that are a little bit younger have understood ways to do things that in the quote unquote old school, there just was no opportunity or understanding of it puts the old school mentality of you make this many calls to get this many meetings to make, you know, these many sales on. It's just not the case. They put everybody into one bucket. Everybody's different in the way they approach it, right? And so for me, I could probably, just the way my, my, my mind works and the way I operate, I could prospect a certain way, sell a certain way, and do a certain thing within a certain amount of time that if you tried to fit someone else into my mold and say, do it like this, you're already gonna mess up at least half, if not three quarters of the people. You're already gonna put them at a disadvantage to, to fight through an uncomfortable way of doing things. That has been flipping and starting to flip. Yes, let, let me just back up and say, is there a numbers game to all of it? That's a part of it, obviously, right? Mm-hmm. Especially in sales. Sales is a numbers game. However, how you achieve those numbers, the way you achieve those numbers, and the way you go about it can be different for each individual. In the old school way of thinking, that just wasn't the case. You had to do it the way that your leader was brought up to do it or your manager was brought up to do it and if you went out of that lane 
you are reprimanded for it regardless, no matter your results. Right. Right. I think that that's the big one. And then certainly <clears throat> what we're seeing with, you know, our environment today, uh, with, with the way everything has happened with the pandemic and, and the way that the reactions have come across several businesses, but, but our industry, you don't need to be in a, a eight to six office setting anymore. You just right. don't. There's ways and efficient, not only are there efficient ways to get work done outside of the office setting, it's a, there's a cost saving mechanism. There's the ability for better mental and, and emotional health that can lead to better production. Uh, there's a lot of opportunities that we're seeing today that I think, again, if you go old school shopping, you, you know, you're, you're looking at it like, oh my God, it's over if we're not in the office. If we're not together sitting there doing things. You're tied to the desk. You're tied to a desk. Is, is, is collaboration important in, in environments? Yes. Are there opportunities for collaboration at times that we don't get right now that we're looking for and we want? Absolutely. Is it a necessity to, to be in, exactly like you said, tied to the desk so when you go to take a water break, you are monitored. Something is wrong with you because you need a second cup of coffee. Something is, is, is bad because you took the extra 10 minutes for lunch. That, that, those are the types of things that, that we're slowly moving away from. And what I'm hoping to see is that our current environment in the pandemic even fast forwards that thinking on some of the quote unquote old school leaders. As we take a quick break from today's interview, a reminder of gratitude for our sponsor, Audible, who is offering each and every playmaker a free audiobook and 30-day free trial when you visit audible.playmakerspod.com. If there's one thing I've seen in most successful people that I've come across, there are a few consistent habits, none greater than the daily practice of leveling up through the power of reading. Some of us like to crack a book open, while others prefer to listen in to our favorite authors narrate their written work of art. What could be better than a platform like Audible to make this habit a reality? To download your free audiobook today, go to audible.playmakerspod.com. It's time to level up. Let's go deeper on the effects and impact of the pandemic. And you and I, we've had many private conversations about this. And I certainly want to carry the conversation toward your team, but I'll start with you individually. As we reflect on 2020, what have you learned personally and professionally and how has it molded uh, your vision of the future. If we, if we look at the outcomes that we envision, um, just talk to us about how, how you've evolved over 2020 and, and how we can leverage this into the future to level up. So, you know, I, I, I'll start professionally because personally I could get a little emotional and, and you can cut me off at any time if I get a little bit long-winded with it. Um, I, I would say professionally is an interesting one. I think the biggest thing I learned was even a higher level of trust in the individual contributors to get the job done in whatever environment. I, yeah. I had a lot of angst um, and, not, and I didn't have angst because of what effort would be put in or things like that. I just had a lot of angst that there, there was an unknown. It wasn't like, hey, here's the structure for what we're about to do. It's shit guys, we gotta figure this out day in and day out and every day could be different. So the, the level of uncertainty already on top of our project, which, you know, it, it, we, we're still uncertain with 
how long we're going to be here and how long everybody has jobs and how, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty there too, because look, we're at the end of the day, we're agents for clients. We work for on behalf of the clients and you never know until you get there, what can happen for the future of that. So you, you double that on top and there was a lot of angst on, on my side. Uh, I think there was a lot of overcompensating in the beginning. I think that I put a lot of pressure, not only on myself, but on the management team to overly focus on what's happening every hour of every day to ensure. Um, the, the biggest thing that I learned was the more pressure we put, the harder it was because the more stress they put on themselves and the more stress they put on themselves, the less productive they would be. And then it just became almost to a point where I was like, oh my gosh, like we, we might implode here after the first three or four weeks. Pulled the reins back, I said, let's trust our people and if they need help, let's be here as a resource, not as an overbearing tool. We are a resource. Ah. Love that. And, and I saw immediately our mentality shift, production shot way up, everybody was happier, felt better, and, and we really just put a lot of trust in our people. And, and what we found out is, people that were struggling, when we were a little more overbearing, started struggling worse, even if they need, just needed the littlest bit of help. Hey, my roommates own the Wi-Fi and they won't let me have the best bandwidth. Or you know, all these little tiny sure. things, right? Um, I really don't have a space to work because they're in the living room the whole time and my bedroom's too small, whatever. They opened up to us in a personal and professional way that put us in a position to be the better resource and help. So to me, I think that level of trust in your people across the board in all of our industries, hopefully, and I know there's some that are way more impacted than others, so I don't speak for everybody, um, but, but I hope that level of trust breeds and confidence breeds into the future of what we're trying to operate as professionally and it opens up a different world of um i, I don't want to call it leniency but i want to call it a different world of opportunity for people to live healthy or mental emotional professional lives and so that that's where i see that trend going um I'll, I'll, and, and greg yeah. also just sorry if i i just for the benefit of everybody because you're you're just <laughs> dropping so much uh Authentic knowledge is what I'll call it, and and just vulnerable perspective. But I'd be remiss if we did not share with the audience. So the how to of how do you build trust? And this is something that all the credit to fellow leaders that I've been able to uh, work with ever since our days in sports. There was a gentleman uh, named Bridge Devine. He's a retired Navy SEAL officer, and essentially there was a masterclass that I was co-facilitating with him on how do you build trust. How do the SEALs build trust in the most adverse of environments? And the beauty and the reason that I wanted to jump in here was it's applicable to any environment, business, anything. And there's four layers of it. And so think of the external layers as consistency and competence. So consistency is doing something right over time. The competence is doing something right. And then the internal layers, and this is really where that secret sauce is that you described. The first is character. The next is compassion. Character is doing the right thing. Compassion is doing the right thing even when it's hard because I care. All of those four, consistency, competence, character, compassion, through your real world example and the knowledge that I was able to gain it happened to be from a Navy SEAL, but to me, those are just life lessons. I, I wanted to jump in and, and just say that is a framework for how we can build trust 
personally and professionally. So please continue. Uh, I, I just thought that was a valuable uh, intersection of adding a framework to a real world example. I love I love that point, and and I think that you know, it, like you said, you can hear the words and you can understand the words, but you have to live and experience the words to ensure that they actually become. What I would say is your daily common practice, right? And, and when you build that level of consistency within those uh, those words, I mean that 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 you nailed it right on the head. I'm glad you did. Um, you you definitely summarized it a lot better than, than I can. But uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I think professionally. <clears throat> It's provided, hopefully, a lot of people an opportunity to reevaluate some of their their general practices and make them better and gain a little more confidence and and, and trust in their people. Um, you know, personally, it's it's been really interesting. I, I think uh, I, I hear a lot personally. I hear a lot of complaints, right? I hear a lot of negative feedback. Now, I will never speak for anyone else. I will also say I understand that this pandemic has brought such heartache to so many people in so many different environments. And not only the pandemic, but the social unrest that's happened throughout mm -hmm. and so many things that, that this year has brought us. However, I, I tend to try and focus on the positive, right? And, and I, I was always told this, and it applies professionally and personally. And, and, and you, know, you know this quote because I've used it with you a lot is, always think, have the mentality of yes, if not, no, because. And, and, I, th and I think we're seeing that, we saw that professionally pretty clearly at times, but I think now personally, we're seeing it because of a lot, a lot of the negativity that can be out there. Personally, I've, I've gone through what I would consider much of a transformation uh, as a human being. Not a couple of reasons, right? I think one, I've, I've been able to really put, put an onus on reconnecting with friends and family and focusing on relationships that I took for granted for quite a while. And I utilized how busy I was in situations to, to almost you know, acknowledge it in my head and be like, you know what, it's an excuse, but I'm gonna use it because I'm gonna believe it and I'm just, I'm so busy, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm busy, I'm busy. No, not doing that anymore, right? I, I am focusing on reconnecting with those people. Um, and, and look, and two of those people are my parents. I mean, I wouldn't talk to them for weeks on end at times and just take it for granted that they were there. Um, and, and guess what? They won't always be there. Right. And, and so I want, I'm, I'm living more in the now with my relationships. And I think that that's been a major focus. I mean, even you and I have had a chance to connect pretty frequently throughout this. And it's been great, uh, not only to continue some of our professional conversations, but also ramp up a lot of our personal conversations too. So that's been important to me. And I want you to know that personally. Um, that's a big one. I think reconnecting with the environment, is another thing. I think we were all forced to be in a situation where you're either going to stay hibernated or you're going to try your best to reconnect with the environment, with nature, with everything around you. Um, you know, I, I think back to if I had to go to the store, I would be like, all right, I got to go to the store. I'll get my car. I'll be back in five minutes. No, I'm, I'm walking. It takes me 30 minutes to walk. I don't care. I'm gonna enjoy myself. I'm gonna get out there. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna enjoy what's around me. I'm gonna go, you know, uh, uh, go down to the beach just to go walk. I'm gonna go, you know, go hiking. Go do more outdoor things. And it put me in in the mindset of of not needing to, but really now wanting to. And now it went for it went from needing to, like I had to, to as like I need to get out of the house. To I don't know if I can live without that moving forward for the rest of my life. I need that in in my in my life moving forward to be to feel more fulfilled. Um, and I think I also found 
people talk about meditation and, and I'd always try to learn through different folks, different practices, understandings, what it means. And throughout this time, I've done some studying and I've, I've learned some different methods and understandings. What I'm realizing though, is that I believe everybody has their own way they have to understand meditation to make it work. So, it, you know, meditation, therapy, whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, going for these walks has been really important to my, by myself, no music, no anything, just walking and, and, and paying attention to what's around me is like a good reset. Um, I, I get on my skateboard. Yeah, so nothing in the ears, nothing, nothing in, in the ears. You're just cruising. No, nope, just cruising. And if, the only reason I would put headphones in is just to block out any other noise if I needed to. Love so it. I'll put, okay. I'll, I'll put the, um, the, what do you call it? The noise blocker, noise cancellation on yeah. with, with nothing on and just cruise and just kind of listen to my breathing and think and walk and I'll walk for an hour and all of a sudden go, oh, shit, I got to get home. <laughs> I, I had to call my wife one time and be like, I, I need a ride. I'm a little far, but, <laughs> um, but, but, it, but it's been good. I mean, that, that's been a big one for me. I mean, even just, you know, getting on my skateboard and, you know, riding that around and, and just, and just being out in the elements, um, cooking. Uh, cooking has become an incredible uh, opportunity uh, for me to, to really meditate while I'm doing it. It, it, it puts my creative brain at, at movement and gets it going and I, I can relax while I'm trying to be creative and it's, it's a good combination yeah. for me. So I'm not, you know, I'm a little bit of a neurotic human, as you know, and as the audience can probably already tell. A little point, bit, <laughs> okay. As the audience can probably already tell, but uh, that, that's been really important. And I think the very last thing personally, um, the relationship that, that I have grown, and I, I had it, but I've really grown with my daughter. So my daughter is 10 years old, um, and, and you've known her since she was, what, one or two? Yeah. Um, and she, so she's 10 years old now, and, and over the last, call it, year, six months, nine months to a year, let's call it nine to 12 months, uh, I have really put a lot of focus and effort without being forced uh, it, it was actually effortless, but was able to do so and, and, pr and develop a relationship that I had never really noticed and or realized we could get to unless this, this the whole pandemic started. Um, you know, what we, what we have now is 10 times better than what we had and not in any negative way prior to, sure. because we always had a great relationship. It's just, it's stronger and it's deeper now, and that means the world to me, to be able to be in a position to take the time, but but not just because I felt like I had to, but because we both naturally started gravitating towards it and then yeah. just kept it going and going and going, so. I love it. So we talk about, you mentioned all elements and layers of your family, and you've talked about connection. So I, just to drill in, because this is such this is so applicable for everybody. And if you ask me what's the number one thing we lost in 2020, it was connection. Connection. Like 100%. Like we are, as a human species, we thrive on connection. And you take away connection, stress, risk, anxiety, uncertainty, all these things. And then you get the social unrest and just uh, the political. I mean, just you can name it, continue to go on and on. But I'd love to drill in on family because that's been a consistent theme throughout our conversation today. So you talked about reconnection with your parents. You've talked about connecting even deeper with your daughter. And I'm sure you would say for your wife and probably the list will continue. What are the top, what's something that you have learned 
if I was to say top lesson your parents have ever taught and top lesson you've learned from your daughter, if we could tackle both of those, because I, I just think there's amazing insight in there. I think there's, I think there's a lot of lessons, uh, certainly throughout the way. And, and to, I, I would be probably remiss to put myself into one lesson that I, you know, with both of them, uh, because there are so many and I'm always open yeah. to, to understanding and learning. I think the best lesson that I, I've learned and, and will continue to, to learn through my parents, uh, which I owe them such a great deal for this because it really drives me every day. Uh, don't overlook an interaction ever in your life. Um, mm. Always genuinely be open and available to anybody. If it's someone holding the door, if it's someone you're in an elevator with, if it's someone you pass on the street, maybe eight times out of 10, those interactions are bullshit and they'll never mean anything. But if you put your all and you don't overlook it, you never know those other two. They could become you know, great relationships for you personally, professionally, whatever in the future. Um, you know, and I've, I've definitely met some interesting people in some interesting ways and, and it's because of them, because I'm always understanding, aware, you know, look people in the eye, say hello, you know, but don't just do it because you have to do it because you want to. And and if you, and if you want to, it's going to open up so many doors for you. I think that's, that's been such a great thing. I'm so fortunate that they had the, the foresight to not just, they didn't just tell me that they continually taught me that throughout my life in different ways and experiences, interactions, lectures. <laughs> be, well, yeah, and, and, and those are their words, but I'm sure it would all be BS if they didn't support it with behaviors and actions. They had to walk the walk. Otherwise, it's just, you know, parenting white noise. This is actual, yo, it doesn't matter what I say. I got to do what I say. And that's, that's leadership in life, period. No, no doubt, no doubt. And that's been a big one. Um, I think if you're talking about my daughter, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with, um, lessening my level of anxiety, uh, in times of anxious moments, I've have a very hard time with that. And, um, she has put me in a position to teach me that the more anxious I get in certain anxious situations, the harder it is for everyone else around me. Now in my head, my anxiousness leads to solution-oriented opportunities, but that's not always what's needed. You don't always need to have a solution. You just need to be there sometimes, right? And you just need to be able to be the calming force, the calming center, the, you know, no matter how anxious something gets. And we are very, very similar in personality. So we can get each other going and going and going and going <laughs> to a point where it gets pretty intense. Um, just because of who we are as people at the core, but it's all from a great genuine place. However, I'm learning that the more anxious I get, and I think through solutions sometimes in situations, the harder it makes it for not only her, but everyone else around me. And sometimes there's just a level of, of patience, understanding, and calm that needs to be brought to a situation and not necessarily solved. If it's a challenge, if it's a, you know, again, an anxious moment, if it, whatever it can be, if she's playing a, a sport, you know, she, she plays soccer year round. So that's a big piece to this too, learning how to work with her in those environments to help teach, but not always have to teach, just be there for her. And, and so that's been a, a tough transition for me, just based yeah. on, on how I've just always been. But she's really, especially in the last year, taught me a lot about being a calming force and not always having to have a solution and not be the anxious one, always thinking, take a step back and just be there. Yeah, calmness, 
presence, being where your feet are, being where your feet are. And, and that level of presence can benefit us all tremendously. And it also does tie in before we go into a, a home stretch question here, you, we've been intertwining, we've been moving in and out and weaving throughout the concept of leadership. And we've also exposed how there isn't a work you and a personal you. There is only one you. If you are a different person at work and at home, you are lying to yourself and others in one of those two places because you only have one core identity. You only have one level of authenticity. And so as I pull this all together, since we have talked about leadership and I'll put you on the hot seat here, but this one's not a tough one in the sense of we might've even tackled this with your fellow leadership team. The question of what makes a great leader and less about how, so think of the greatest leader you've ever had in your life, any walk of life, personally or professionally, not as much how they made you feel, more about how they showed up. What did they do? Meaning their actions and their behaviors. So just let's rattle off. Uh, think of that greatest leader right now. And for everybody listening in, put yourself in this, let's call it a workshop environment. I ask you to think of the greatest leader you've ever had, any walk of life. What did they do? Their actions, their behaviors. So Greg, for you, let's just rattle off five to 10 just concrete. I'm, I'm at a flip chart writing these down. Sure. I think uh, whether fortunate or unfortunate, we've tackled a, a lot of the, the character traits, but um, vulnerability is a big one. So okay. when, when I think of some of the greatest leaders I've been a part of, when they have the vulnerability to either admit they made a mistake and or come to you with a question, knowing that you have okay. a level of expertise, like that, that's huge, right? Um, that's a big one. Self-awareness. Uh, I, I can't, I can't, begin to describe Paul how important that is especially to someone who who pays attention to that just like that's a, a trigger for me um, but but it's the greatest leaders understand who they are and they're aware of what they know they're aware of what they don't know and they understand 100%. that um, that's a big one for me I think uh, again consistency is huge yep. um, I think having a consistent mindset with a level of authenticity behind that consistency um, that's that's just such a great thing uh, for, from a leadership perspective you know I here here is the how I would encapsulate though if I'm really thinking about the greatest leaders there you know I think I think of two really in my head professionally and and I think of some folks personally because uh, leadership has forms right leadership doesn't have to be professionally all yeah. the time it, it's definitely you could be a leader in your personal life and you, you've taught me a lot about that through Finding, finding my why and understanding what that means to, to find it, but then make decisions based on it and understand why you're making those decisions ah. based on it. So we can get into that after this, but really I look at it this way. What do people say when they don't know you're going to hear them? Yeah. What do people say about you when you have no idea and they have no idea that you're going to hear them? That to me is the true definition of a leader. Because if they are going to say what they say to you and say what they say to you to everybody else, like you said, having your one authentic self across the board, no matter what, that's a good leader. And, and there's, a, there's one instance where um, I, I was on uh, connected via phone a couple years ago uh, to somebody <clears throat> and I never knew them. I, I was on a phone call with them. And it was, a, it was either a vendor and or going to be another client or whatever the case may be. But I was on the phone 
and the guy, the guy is like, Greg Kish, I, I know you, I know your name. Where do I know you from? What have you done? So I gave him my background and told him what I did. He goes, that's what it was. I was speaking to X person and they were telling me how incredible you are, not only as, as a, a manager and a leader of people and everything you do, but just as a human being and how, yeah. how much they supported you and everything you do and, and how much you mean to them. And it, and I thought to myself, holy shit, there is no way <laughs> in, in ever, coincidentally, you would think that, that we would ever cross paths. I would cross paths with this other person. But the leader at the time had said that to me to my face, but you know, who knows, right? There was no, there was no reason for him to say it. There was no uh, uh, gain for him to say it. He just, mm -hmm. that's how he felt. And he wanted others to know about that without any inkling of that getting back to me. And that, that meant so much to me in that environment that I can go back and say, my true definition of leadership overarchingly is that one authentic opportunity is what you're going to say to somebody is exactly what you're going to say about them to somebody else. And you don't waver, you don't waver in that environment. And that, that builds so much credibility and trust in, in I'm fully indebted to that person just for something that maybe again, they had no bearing of consequence when they made those decisions or said those things. I love it. Yeah. Who we are behind closed doors. That's the true testament of character and, and to bring it into somebody. And this is somebody that I feature in my book and it's the late Bill Campbell, uh, his book, the trillion dollar coach. So he was known to coach the likes of the Steve jobs at Jeff Bezos, uh, the Marissa Mayers, well before they were household names. I mean, he was really just the, he was the guru of Silicon Valley uh, decades ago. And one of his core people principles, and you'll love this. And for everybody listening in, this encapsulates everything. Your title makes you a manager. Your people will decide if you are a leader. That's it. Like, so even though your analogy is more what happens and is said behind closed doors, it's the same concept. You ain't a leader because of your title or your rank or your role or the authority or the influence I have over somebody else's life. Would they follow you if you had none of those things just because of who you are and how you show up? So with that, as we're coming up here, I got two quick ones. We'll go rapid fire on this home stretch. The first one you brought up, so I'll credit you with this, and I'm so glad you brought us here. And then we'll have the grand finale. So unpack for us. If I was to say, how does your why lead to decisions. What's a purpose-driven framework is another way to say that. If your purpose is who you are at your core, your purpose is your why. Uh, think of your values as the next layer. That's your who. And then from there, it informs your attitudes, which is your belief system. Your belief system drives your decisions. And on the back end of every decision is an action and a behavior. Like that's just, that's who we are. That's the congruence. That's the alignment. So if I was to ask you, what is the most significant way you probably only have time for one here. What's the most significant way that your why has driven your decisions ever since finding that internal compass? It's, it's given me an understanding um, as to, again, using the word why, as to why I get pulled into certain directions and or think certain ways about opportunities, whether it's with people or with situations. And what it's done is given me not necessarily driven a decision because you just made the best point, Paul. That is who you are and that's what you've been doing. But when you have an understanding of why you're making certain decisions or why you're doing things uh, with or for other people or why you're putting yourself in situations, I think you can better navigate those situations with a level of confidence because in the back end, you understand what they are. 
and you understand why you're doing it. Yeah. And to me, it's not necessarily driving a decision, but it's helping me have confidence in my decision so then I can really put a level of focus as opposed to going, well, why the hell am I doing this? What, what's going on? Why, 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 why am I making decisions? Why am I putting myself in, in these situations? What's going on? Now I say, okay, I fully understand. This is my purpose. This is who I am. I'm comfortable. I'm confident. Let's fucking roll. Right? And, and, and excuse my language, but, that, but that's how it feels to me now. I have so much more uh, confidence and I'm so much more comfortable in, the, in those situations where before, I won't say I was lost, but I certainly didn't understand fully. And, and helping, you know, being in a situation to be able to help put this into words. And, and I, if you want me to share it, I certainly can so people can understand maybe where I'm coming from, if that makes sense. You yeah, can tell yeah, me. No so, so, so after a few iterations, really I have to be a catalyst for others and spark opportunities so that they reach their full potential. And that is so important to me, is to be that catalyst. And I never understood that was that important, a driving factor really wanting to see others personally, professionally reach their full potential, not what I think a full potential is, their full potential in every, yeah. in every situation, in every environment, in every decision, whatever they're a part of, that means more to me than me putting myself in those situations, right? Mm. And, and so I just never fully understood that until I went through the process. So when you talk about playmaking, Right? When you're making plays, you have to have the level of confidence and comfort to make the right play, to make the big play, to make the understanding play. Like you have to have that. And if you don't, you just gotta flip a coin and get lucky at times. And, and, and you can't live your best life doing that. And really driving home that understanding has just helped me with my confidence and with my level of comfort. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you brought us to the place of playmakers they play with purpose they know who they are better said they know why they play the game they know why they play the game because if you don't have a deeply rooted care about the game that you're going to play then some other factor is going to get in the way and throw you off course but when i care deeply about the game that i'm playing when there is purpose underneath why I strapped that helmet on in any aspect of life, that's a game that never stops. There's no finish line. You don't decide when you live with purpose or without. Once you find it, you're called to it. And to your point, you're confident, you're empowered, and you just drive. In my words, you play offense. It becomes non-negotiable. So here's, here's the grand finale for you, Greg. Let's Imagine this utopian space here. So we check all of the important boxes of life to eliminate any stress you may have. Your money is, you're in great financial position. You have no financial worries, work responsibilities taken care of. You have a complete blank canvas from here going forward. How, what would you like to dedicate the rest of your life working toward? It's, it's, it's a hell of a question, Paul, and certainly I think it's one um, that consistently changes based on certain understandings in your life, certain understandings personally, certain understandings professionally. Um, it, what's, what's interesting, though, to me is, is that mine hasn't wavered. It's just been understood. Um, mm. what, 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 what I want to continue to do is put myself in a position to help young adults 
throughout their lives navigate not only their understandings of their careers and what they can potentially be, you know, at level to do, but get to them at a point where the the true genuine understanding of how to navigate the waters and why and and what you know, putting yourself in a position almost like a college professor. While I'll never want to institutionalize myself necessarily in that environment because there's so many political aspects with it and there's so much you know that, that comes with all of that. So I don't want to say college professor because as a, as, a, as like a job because I don't necessarily agree with that. But the understanding to help mold young man, minds and and spark those opportunities per my my purpose and my why to spark those opportunities to, to have that light bulb go off of wow, that's the way we should think about going about it is really something moving forward that just is such a driving purpose for me for the rest of my life that that I don't think has necessarily wavered over the last, call it 10 years. Um, I think now it's just more understood and it really is about where do I find those opportunities and how do I create more of them and or open the door so more are created for me. Um, it really is important to me and it's something that I do care about and I'm starting to do that both personally and professionally with a lot of people and it's and it's it, the rewards of also learning from them in these environments has enriched me to a level I never thought I would get to and I'm hoping to continue to grow that more and more each day. Wow. Uh, so well said and if I could take a page out of the Greg Kish playbook, your purpose has unearthed your highest sense of self-awareness. You are now aware of who you are and why you serve. You needed the words on paper to truly manifest it and bring it to life, but ultimately you are here. Your legacy is gonna be about being that catalyst. The catalyst so that others can unleash their full potential. That is Greg Kish. Thank you, brother. This has been such an inspiring conversation. And I know that you have built a, as many fans as you may have in the Rams and Chargers community, know that in the game of life, you built an authentic fan base today by showing us who you are. And yes, we, we applaud your accomplishments and your success, but I think we owe you even more gratitude for the lessons and the insights and the impact that you made on countless people today. So thank you so much for joining us on Playmakers. Now, thank you, Paul. As I said in the beginning, I, I'm honored and, and I appreciate and respect all of our conversations. I will certainly continue to appreciate, look out for and be genuinely approachable and respect any future conversations with anybody as it so happens to, to be, because you never know when those will come up, but yeah. I'll never overlook those opportunities. At the end of the day, Paul, I, I will say uh, everything that you've done uh, everything professionally that you've been a part of, who you are personally. Uh, I know how lucky I am to, to be in your life and, and be a part of everything that you're going through. And um, so thank you for putting me in that position. And thank you for having me today, because it really has been a lot of fun, as it always is. I look forward to our continued uh, momentum, our growth of our relationship in all aspects. So uh, and I'm excited to see where everything takes you. So awesome, Greg. Well, beyond a mutual feeling. So continued success. We'll continue to level up. And thanks everybody for tuning in to Playmakers. Wow. I hope that you enjoyed that as much as I did. Greg is truly one of the special ones. And I feel honored and humbled to share that conversation with him and with every single Playmaker out there. Now, as playmakers, you and I, 
It's time for us to make a play of our own. Greg and I touched on the concept of building trust. And I mentioned a framework from past Playmakers podcast guest, Rich Devinney, retired Navy SEAL officer. If you haven't listened in on that episode with Rich, I highly encourage you to check it out. Just head over to playmakerspod.com. In today's show notes, we have a link to the model of trust, which Rich and the Chapman & Co. Leadership Institute co-created. You'll not only see the quad box model of what builds trust from competence to consistency to character and compassion, you'll also see the behaviors and actions on how you can show up each day to build trust with others personally and professionally. It's time to make a play and bake trust into our Playmaker Toolkit so we can all level up together. Loved what you just heard? Share it with another Playmaker. And for all of today's show notes, head over to playmakerspod.com where you can not only enjoy additional resources from today's show, but all previous episodes as well. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever it is that you get your favorite podcasts. If you gain significant value from today's episode and genuinely feel that you have leveled up, give us a five-star rating. And between now and the next Playmakers episode, let's stay connected. Hit me up on LinkedIn, at Paul Epstein, or Instagram, at Paul Epstein Speaks. Playmakers is produced by Motown Podcast Studios in collaboration with Purpose Labs. Wishing you a high-impact week of action and purpose. See you next time on Playmakers. Playmakers.